We are in the middle of a series, in fact, we're on the other side of one, and it's called Simply Living, and a whole lot of you have been saying this has been coming at a good time. Uh, we've got a graphic representation here and here that gives you a little bit more about uh, what this series is about. Does this feel like anyone's life right here? <laughs> feels a lot like my life at different times. This series is about if your life feels like this, how, how do you get your life to feel more like this? The word we got in the middle there is shalom. It's that Hebrew word for peace that we're talking about. And it's more than just the absence of chaos. It is in the middle of chaos, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of craziness, that you can feel centered and you can feel a sense of peace and you can feel a sense of direction and hope and all those things. Um, this graphic, except for the shalom part, I added that. This graphic comes from a, a book. I put the uh, reference in your notes. It's called Essentialism. One of our um, elders handed it to me. It's a great book. So they've got this graphic in there. They also have this graphic. I think this is fa fascinating too. Um, a lot of our lives we feel like this, don't we? Where you've got your focus, but it's going this direction, this direction, this direction, this direction, right? All these things at once are like grabbing your attention. Even right now, I can tell your minds are four different places right now, aren't they? Five, six, seven, right? Okay, come on. You can talk truth. We're in, we're in church, right? We're this, is, this is what our lives are like a lot. And what this guy in the book makes a case for is he said, what if your life could be more like this in any given moment? Where instead of trying to do everything at once, what if, what if our lives were more focused on a given moment, on, on the thing right in front of us, the, the task at hand? Well, what we've tried to do in this series, the Simply Living series, we, we've tried to apply this so far to priorities, that's one of the things we've looked at. We tried to apply this type of thinking to finances. We tried to apply this kind of thinking to relational circles. And what I'd like to do today is to focus on work. Focus on work. How can we apply these principles to work? In his book, Simplify, that I've been recommending throughout the series, um, Pastor Bill Hybels, he says that we're going to spend a third of our lives working. A third of our lives working. If we can't get the work piece right, you're never going to experience this. You're never going to experience that if you can't get the work piece right. And when I say get the work piece right, I'm not saying that you have to go find the perfect job because it doesn't exist. We say the same thing about our church, right? If you ever find the perfect church, don't join it. Why? You'll wreck it, right? <laughs> and, and if you ever find the perfect job, don't apply because if they hire you, what's going to happen? You're going to wreck that workplace because we're imperfect people. We live in an imperfect world. And there's going to be lots of this right, at any workplace. And there's going to be these kind of demands in any workplace. So rather than looking for the place that doesn't have that, which doesn't exist, what if, what if we internally could be in a different place? What if work, even in an imperfect work environment, what if it felt more like this? Or what if you were able to do that, even if the work environment didn't naturally lend itself to that? I came across a, a great quote as I was prepping this message. I was doing a lot of reading to get ready for the series, and, and, and they referenced Handel's Messiah. Most of you probably recognize Alleluia Chorus. We got a little clip of that. Name that tune. Recognize this? Raise your hand if you recognize this. All right, you got it. Okay. So while Handel was working on this, you can fade that down. Here's, the, um, here's a quote I came across. While he was working on this whole big work, which... I said, hey, Joe, can you get us a clip from Handel's Messiah? And she goes, it's two and a half hours long. What part do you want? Um, as he was working on this big thing, here, here's, here's what was said about him. One of the most extraordinary things about the way Handel composed Messiah is what a short time it took him 
Granted, some of the tunes were taken from his earlier works. Handel always believed that if a tune was worth hearing once, it was probably worth hearing twice. Some of you get that? All right. We got some classical music people. I'm like, that's probably funny. Um, <laughs> but then again, I like country. So, all right, next. next but the, the quote continues. Okay, here's the, here's the meat of the quote. The work, this huge work, this monumental work that all these people hundreds of years later, we've heard of it, okay? The work was completed in a few weeks of sustained activity, during which he frequently went for long periods without food. He was carried along by the music, which he could scarcely get down on paper fast enough. He spoke afterwards of that time as a wonderful, exalted, heavenly vision. Now, you may not use the words heavenly vision, but how many of you have ever been in the zone where you've been on a project and you lose track of time and you feel like it's going really well? You almost might go as far as to say, but I think God is in this. Anyone experience that, right? You lose track of time. And what if more of our lives could be more like that? It, it can't be like that all the time. It's a fallen, broken world. But what if more of our lives were more like that? Where more of our lives... We were focused on something on any one given moment that gave us that kind of burst, that kind of energy, that kind of sense that maybe God is even in this. What we've tried to do in this series is we've tried to look to the example and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And whether or not you're ready to, to follow him um, the way that Christians do, you've you got to admit, this guy changed the world. And in a, one short life, he accomplished more than any other person in history, when you look at the movement that came after him, the, the, the ripples from that, that wave. And here's what Jesus said about work. Take a look at this. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's how Jesus looked at work. He, he didn't look at work as this, where he, he's got all this focus, and he could have because there's nobody that ever had more demands on them, big demands, change the world demands, create the timeline that we have demands. Nobody has done that. He was able to, instead of this, he was able to focus on one thing, and he just told us what the one thing was, to do the will of his father. In any given situation, he knew what that meant. When there were a million people to heal, he knew which one or two he knew when not to heal. When, when there was a confrontation, he knew when to confront, when not to confront. He always knew in any given one moment what was his one job, what was pleasing to the Father. I'd encourage you to write this down because this is where we're going to go here with, with this, this teaching, and, and, and I, hope, I hope that it's helpful. I believe followers of Jesus, if we're going to be faithful to his example, faithful to his teachings, we've got one job, and that's to do our Father's will. That's it. In any one given moment, we have one job, it's to do our Father's will. And I, I didn't go into this. In fact, again, if you were looking ahead, that wasn't the title of this message, One Job. I, I, I was trying to look at the example teaching of Jesus, and it ended up changing the title and everything else. Like I mentioned before, it's funny how the Bible gets in the way of your sermon sometimes, right? You have this whole plan of what you're going to say. And I was thinking about this. This is what he did, and if we could get this, it could change our life. And that is not an overstatement. Because think about this. Would you ever have to worry about losing your job? No. In fact, you can go to the scriptures, and you've got examples, Moses and David. They left their sheep. Why? Because it was their father's will to do so. It was their job. Peter and Andrew left their nets behind. Why? It was their father's will. They were doing their job. 
Matthew left his job with the Roman IRS. Why? It was his father's will. He was doing his job. Whether you're at home or at the office, whether you're watching a movie or on a basketball court, in any given moment, wherever you are, you have one job if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. What is it? Do your father's will. That's it. The hard part is knowing what that means. But that's it. One job, any situation, in the marketplace, not in the marketplace. But let's talk about the marketplace. Very early on, disciples of Jesus, years after his life, very early on, the, the disciples of Jesus recognized if you are in the workplace, you know what it means to do the Father's will? It means to bring your A game every day. That's what it meant for them. Bring your A game. In fact, they said, when you go to work, you work as though you are working unto the Lord, not to your boss. And you do the same whether the boss is looking or the boss is not looking. Bring your A game. And to the bosses, those who are the boss, we're instructed to treat those who report to us with dignity. That's our job. With respect, that's our job. With compassion, that's our job. We have one job in any given situation, where you're the boss or the employee. You have one job. It's the same job as a Christian. Do your Father's will. The Bible teaches that we're to provide for ourselves and our families with the work of our hands. Listen to this. The man who makes every effort, or the woman who makes every effort to find a job, even if it's an undesirable job, because you are going to provide. And it's going to be by the work of your hands, not someone else's, to provide, as much as it depends on you. And you take that job that's undesirable. That is an honorable thing. You are doing the will of your father. You're doing your job in that moment. That doesn't mean you have to stay in it. But in that moment, you're doing your job. When we get this, we can opt out of the comparison game, can't we? Because this is an example that came to mind. Whether it's the Christian surgeon or the Christian nurse or the Christian who's recovering from surgery or the Christian friends and family who visit the person who's recovering or if it's the hospital chaplain or if it's the Christian janitor who works at the hospital or if you're a Christian person and you're delivering stuff for the vending machine, you all have the same job. What is it? To do your Father's will. It's the same job. Our entire paradigm of the workplace changes when we get this because there is always, at any given moment, there is always a meaningful opportunity that we just need to look for. There's always a meaningful opportunity. And sometimes it is to execute your task with excellence. It is to do the work you were paid for most of the time. It's to do the work you're paid for and do it to the best of your abilities. But sometimes the whole reason you were supposed to be at work that day was to give a listening ear to a coworker or a customer. Sometimes the entire reason you were supposed to go to work that day was to speak up when no one else had the courage to do so. Sometimes your, your entire purpose that day might be to, to affirm somebody who's getting beat up at work and let them know you're doing a great job, or to give them encouragement of where they could improve. Maybe your job is to clean up a mess that someone didn't make, or stop gossip and rumors. Guess what? That's always our job, isn't it? Stop gossip and rumors. Maybe your job is to try to be a peacemaker between two departments that are at war with one another. In any given moment, your job could look different, but we always have one job, and it's what? To do our Father's will. And sometimes the will of our Father is to rest. Can I get an amen? Sometimes our job is to take a vacation. Amen. Sometimes our job is to enjoy a great meal. Sometimes our job is to take a walk. Sometimes our job is to take a nap. 
or read a book or watch a sunset or listen to classical music, right? Sometimes our job might be to say no. Did you hear that? Sometimes our job is to say no. Sometimes our job is to say, you know what, that's someone else's job. Sometimes that's our job. Followers of Jesus, we've got one job. Our job is to do our Father's will, whatever that means in any given situation. And it, it'd be fascinating if we had more time. There's been a whole lot of studies that I've seen lately, or at least references to studies. Uh, people talking about multitasking, how they're studying multitasking again, taking a second look at that, and they're saying it's really ineffective. Because really, this is all you can do at once. And, and it'd be interesting to go off on that tangent, but I don't. I want to I get back to the text, because I just read one verse. Let's look at it in context, and it's fascinating to do that. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up. John chapter 4, we're going to spend almost our entire time here today in John chapter 4. We'll have to go fast, because there's a lot here. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, I want to let you know, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack. That's one of our jobs, to make sure you guys get a Bible if you don't have one. So we keep a stack of them there and there, and they're there for you. To, uh, to, to take. Um, I want to mention a couple things about this text before we dive in. One of them is this is a text that we've come through before, and we've come through it through different angles. It's just fascinating to see when you look at a, a text how many layers there are. So we've looked at this text before through the, um, the lens of evangelism, and that is the context here. Without a doubt, that's the primary deal going on here. Um, we also could make a case that when Jesus is talking about accomplishing his Father's work, he's talking about the cross without a doubt, there too. And so that would be an important thing that we're going to have to shelve for another discussion. But I want to look at this today as it relates to our work. So here we go, John chapter, one, verse, John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, Jesus left Judea, he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour, I had to look up what is sixth hour, that's noon. Noon, so it's noon. So it makes total sense that Jesus, his job was to rest because he was traveling, right? And he's weary. And so when it's hot, as it would be right there, it's hot, you're traveling, your job at noon is to rest. So he sits beside a well, going to get some water. Disciples go off to get some food. We're going to see that. He's doing his job as a traveler. Now, if you're a local, you're not going to be at the well at noon. You're not going to be there. Because if you're a local, you don't have running water in this area. So what you have to do is you have to fetch water. you got to fetch a pail of water. Right? So you got uh, Jack and Jill. Who in the world? Okay. So I'm trying to focus, Chris. That's why I write things down. Focus. Okay. So, so you got to fetch the water. And it's a big deal because you have to get enough water for your whole family. So you have to go there, transfer, carry all this water. So you're not going to go at noon because it's hot. You're going to go to the well in the morning or you're going to go to the well at night. So Jesus is where he's supposed to be. It's hot. He's a traveler. And a local person comes and she's not where she's supposed to be. And Jesus realizes... I'm where I'm supposed to be for a conversation here with this woman. So let's pick up where the text picks up. A woman from Samaritan now, from Samaria, she comes to draw water. And Jesus said, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Remember that. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you what? Does the text say? Living water. It's like, girl, this is a trade up. You're going to give me some of this lukewarm water to drink? And I could give you living water. If you just seize this moment, if you focus on one thing here for a second, put down the jar, listen. This is going to be a trade up. Let's jump ahead to verse 16. Jesus says to this woman, he says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that. You have no husband. You've had five husbands. And now the one that you have, he's not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I thought that was funny too. It just cracked me up. Perceive you're a prophet. All right, let's jump ahead. Verse 25. The woman says to Jesus, she goes, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then his disciples came back. And they marvel that he's talking to a woman. Not only is she Samaritan. Hey, you don't talk to a woman. What are you thinking, Jesus? Well, the woman, look what she did. She left her water jar. She stopped her work. She left her water jar. She went into town and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the people went out from the town and now they're coming to Jesus. Meanwhile, the Bible puts that in there on purpose. Meanwhile, change the direction. Get your attention. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging as the people are coming, the disciples are urging, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you don't know about. And the disciples are like, who gave him the sandwich? Because he's got food that we don't know about. And Jesus clarifies. He goes, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's the context of this. Well, there's a lot going on here. As I mentioned earlier, there's all these different contexts that are huge to this story. But I want to focus in on how this text relates to our work. And one of the things that I, I noticed, not because I'm brilliant and bright, but because I took the time to slow down, open up some commentaries, look at some study Bibles, one of the things that I noticed is there's some juxtaposed parallelism. parallelism. And this isn't something that they said. I, think, I don't even know if that's a thing. I'm just using those words because they're things are juxtaposed and they seem to be parallel, all right? You've got the disciples. They went into town. And what did they go into town? When they went into town, what did they come back with? Oh, food, okay? So you've got disciples. They go into town. They come back with food. When the Samaritan woman went to town, what did she come back with? People. The Bible uses the language harvest later, which is really interesting. Disciples, the ones who are the followers of Jesus, they go to town, they come back with food. They're doing their work. They're focused. Hey, we got to get the order right. Who ordered the number four? Who ordered the number five? Got to get the order right. Okay, we're going to get food. Jesus is hungry. Come back with food. The woman comes back with people. Here's another thing I'd never noticed before. Jesus' first words to the woman were, give me a drink. Jesus' disciples first words to Jesus were, Rabbi, eat. The juxtapositions continue. The disciples' words remind the reader, Jesus never got his drink. Jesus never got his drink. 
And in fact, the woman, she was so affected by the conversation with Jesus, she left her water jar at the well and went into town to tell others about Jesus. Again, she stopped working to focus on something more important, a task that God had set up. And she didn't even know she was doing her father's work. And now, after missing his drink, Jesus is about to miss lunch that his disciples brought back from town because a Samaritan woman is bringing back something more important from that same village. And it's something that none of the 12 disciples brought back. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus says to them, verse 32, he says, I have food that you know nothing about. And, and I want that to sink in for a second because here's another thing I never noticed before. Jesus is talking to his disciples, his disciples, and, and he's putting himself up and against them by the, word, the use of the word I. Could we put that slide back up, the one that I have food to eat? He uses the word I, and, and that is a word that, that says there's me and there's you. There's me and there's you. He did that with the woman, right, at the well. You know, give me a drink, and, and, and I have this living water. He set himself apart from her. Here he's setting himself apart from the disciples, and it makes sense why. Because Jesus has food that they know nothing about. These are his followers. These are his disciples. And they went into that same village and they came back with, the, you know, whatever it is you come back with from that village. Whereas she came back with something more important. While the disciples were working, while they were off getting food, Jesus and the Samaritan woman were working too. And if we had the time to keep reading, we could see the fruit of their work. These people that came to meet Jesus, they met Jesus. As in they, by the end of this passage, are calling him Savior. And that's a big deal. Here's how N.T. Wright put it in his um, commentary. He said, the way that this passage ends, it is worth pondering deeply. Here is a woman who, a matter of an hour or so be before, had been completely trapped in a life of immorality, as a social outcast. There was no way backwards or forwards for her. All she could do was eke out a daily existence and make sure that she went to the well at the time of day when nobody would be there to sneer or to mock. And now, she has become the first evangelist to the Samaritan people. Before any of Jesus' own followers could do it, she has told them that he's the Messiah. And then, just as they've come to see Jesus themselves, they have now been convinced. Indeed, they gave Jesus a title that the emperor in faraway Rome had begun to use for himself. Savior of the world. Wow. All that from a conversation. She's just going to the well. She's focused on getting water. And she's also kind of focused on, I hope nobody sees me. She meets this guy, Jesus, who instead of being focused on just getting a drink, has some better, something better in mind. Can you imagine how our lives would be different if we were more in tune with what God would have us to do in any given moment? So I want to close with two questions. The first one is this. What if we sought after the mind of Christ and not just gave lip service to that? What if we really sought after it? What if we set out to say, I want that. I want that mind of Christ. I want to know how to be able to focus on the right thing at the right time. 
the one thing that God wants me to focus, focus on. What does it mean when I go to work? How do I honor my employer well? What does that look like? And when do I say, yep, you can give me more? When do I say, you're going to have to help me choose here because I can't do all of these things you've asked? How do we know when to say that? Of the 10,000 tasks on our plate, what do we focus on first? When do we speak up? When should we be silent? Those kind of questions. When should we stay late? Because sometimes we should. When should we go home early? Because sometimes we should. Here's a big question. When do you stay in your current role? You know, how do you, how do you know I'm supposed to stay here because my real work is not accomplished here yet? And then when do you know it's time to start looking for something else and praying for something else? H how do you know the answers to these questions? Well, I, I think about that song that we sang earlier, Who Brings Our Chaos Into Order? Well, in the song we sang, it's the King of Glory. And what did the King of Glory do? He gave us his one and only son. He set an example for us. And then what did he do? He died on the cross. Then what he, he promised he'd send his Holy Spirit, the living water. He promised to give the living water. And I, I, I look at our own lives, and so often we are just spiritually dehydrated. We're listening. We're not hearing anything. We're spiritually dehydrated. The living water isn't flowing through us. And there are no shortcuts to that. It's not as simple as one prayer. That can get you in the right direction. But living water, that's, that's this whole series we've been talking about. Let's put that slide up on the screen, this, this series. Here, spiritual hydration, it, it looks like all these things we've been talking about. It starts with what we started in week one, taking the posture of a disciple. Are you really going to listen? Like this woman did, who, she was going to the well. She was going to the well. She was going to do work. She was able to pause, recognize something about Jesus. Okay, I'm listening. Even though this doesn't make sense, I'm listening. Are you willing to take the posture of a disciple? I'm going to listen. I'm, I'm going to seek. I'm going to try to get to know what you have to say. Then prioritizing our life around Christ's example teachings. That was week two. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are we willing to put the first things first and work the rest of our life around that? Week three was about setting our eyes on treasure worth treasuring. You know how many of our work-related problems have to do with fearing the wrong things, with chasing after the wrong things, with worrying about things that aren't really important and things that we can never get? How much of our stress is about that? What if we could put our eyes on treasure worth treasuring? And then last week, Matt did a great job of talking about investing our time in the relationships that matter most. Instead of having all these millions of circles, what if we simplified and we focused most of our time on the relationships that were the most important, the ones where God is most at work in them? The Spirit is at work through all those things. And then what happens is we start to get that alignment this starts to happen, and we start to realize as that living water flows through our veins, we are able to do things that we could never do on our own because now you've got the very power of God working through you, which brings us to the next question. What if we really believe that God is ridiculously in charge? What if we really believe that, that God is ridiculously in charge, that the creator of the universe can make things work? What if we really believe that? And the last time, it's killing me right now because I'd like to go back over ground that we already covered because last time that we went through John together, this chapter 4, we took a look at some things that happened at that very site where the woman in the well incident took place hundreds of years before. God had set things up for this moment. He had put things in place. I'd encourage you to get some study Bibles, get some commentaries, look into it. God had set this all up. This was all ready to go for that conversation. When that conversation happened, everything was in place for what happened next. 
God set it all up in advance. And he, he alludes to that um, in John 4, 38. If we were just to go a couple other verses ahead, he alludes to that. He's talking to the disciples. He goes, I send you to reap for that which you did not labor. Isn't that what he did with the Samaritan woman? He just sent her to town, and it was already set up. They were waiting for the Messiah, even though they didn't really know that they were waiting for the Messiah. God, God had set it all up. God is ridiculously in charge. He's in charge in the sense of he is worthy of our complete devotion. Oh, right, you're the boss. What you say, I'll do that way. But also he's in char- ridiculously in charge. He can make everything work together for his purposes. He says it in Ephesians 2.10, one of my favorite passages. We are his workmanship, created in Christ to do good works, that we should walk in them. There are so many times where he's got everything set up. He is ridiculously in charge. I've said before, I'll say it again, I have seen him open doors that I never could open on my own. But you walk in obedience and you realize he set it all up ahead of time. And here's the other one that I'm so thankful of. There are so many times I would have gone through one door and he closes it. And if I would have went through that door, it would have been stepping into an elevator shaft, right? Oh, man, especially in dating, you know? Oh, so many, so glad. Teens, listen to your parents. We're, we're not perfect, but you're going to look back on a lot of these people and you're like, what? Why can't I date this person? And you're going to look back later and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know? There's so many things like that, right? Where God protects us sometimes by closing the doors. He's ridiculously in charge when we listen to him. And then this is one of the things I've really been noticing lately. I've got so much on my plate right now. And, and one of the things I'm noticing is I'm trying to do this. I don't always get it right 100% or even close to that. But there are times where I'm trying to do this and I'll have the 50 things that I could be doing today and, and, and I'll say, okay, I only have time for these. And then the thing that I would have spent like three hours on that I'm like, all right, I have peace about letting this go for now. I didn't have to do it. Because it worked itself out. God can even help us with that where we don't waste time. He's ridiculously in charge. And what if we were consciously aware of that? That he can do his will. And we just need to figure out what it is. And we may not see the results. We may not see the results right away. But what if we trusted that he is ridiculously in charge and if we are obedient, he's going to use it. Well, yesterday, as I was going through my notes, I realized... I probably blew it this week. I mean, I blew it a whole lot of ways I didn't realize, but here's one that I, that I think I did realize. Um, I, I missed a woman at the well moment, I think. Um, let me back up a little bit. So th- um, a week, about a week ago, I had so much going on, I had to get out of town to get stuff done. You ever been there? You got to get out of the office to get stuff done, okay? So I'm trying to get out of the office to get stuff done, and I got ca- called back from Covenant Pines because of something that happened. So I, I come from Covenant Pines, I have to go right to pick up my daughter, um, and I pick her up, and my oldest daughter, and, and she's hungry. And, and so I make the mistake of saying, where do you want to go to eat? And I'm like, oh, because now I asked her. So now when she says the place that I don't want to go, I can't, you know, I'm, I was tempted to do the whole, well, how about this place, how about this place, how about this place? But I'm like, you know what? Little voice in my head said, no, don't play that game. You asked her, so go. So we go to this uh, fast food restaurant that is not my favorite. And, 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 we, and, and, we, and we go up to the counter, and there was this guy that you could tell he, he was just doing this because he needed money. Um, he's about my age. He was really struggling at that register. And I had enough bearing about me to say, you know what? You have a job right now, and that is to try to help this guy build him up because everything we ordered, I mean, we had two meals. They were really simple. 
Um, and, and it was hard. And so I was able to, with sincerity, go, man, I don't know how you do it. Because I would just be, and this is true, I would, I, I would explode. I would be throwing that register through the wall, right? And he's having to ask people half his age to come and help him. And they're all mad at him. And the manager's mad at him. And I was able to say to the manager, hey, he's doing a great job. He's got a great attitude here. Anyway, so 10 minutes later when we got our food at the fast food restaurant, you know, I was at least feeling like I had at least been able to help in that moment. But, but that isn't the moment. That was a week ago. Fast forward to Friday, this Friday. Another one of those days I'm going, I cannot get all this done, so I'm trying to do this, trying to focus on the most important things. But I was in this mode right here. I was trying not to be, but I was. And so I'm like, I, I probably should get some food. So I'm thinking, I don't have time to do errands and food, so I'm going to see if I can do errand food. And so instead of going to like Potbelly and then to Target or to Chipotle and to Target, I'm like, I'll just go to Target. Whenever's hot in that little place by the register, I'll just take one of those, okay? So I go up to the register. I've got my card ready to go. I'm swiping it before she's even punched stuff in. You know, I'm just, I'm like, okay, I've got it. I sit down and I'm about to throw this down my throat as fast as I can. And guess who's sitting right across from me? It's the guy from the restaurant. And I don't think he recognizes me, at least in my head. That's what I'm telling myself. So I'm like, you know, because, and then, and then he starts making small talk. And I'm like, that's great. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm trying to send all the signals of, hey, you have dignity and I care about you as a person, but I don't have time for anything right now. <laughs> if you could do those two things. I was trying, right? And so, so anyway, he goes his way, I go my way. And then comes Saturday. So that was Friday. Then comes Saturday. And I'm, I'm pausing and I'm praying. And I'm saying, God, okay, this message, I just want to go through it one more time. And then I was like, food, your job. I said no to a whole lot of people that day and a whole lot of projects that day, but this is the one I shouldn't have said no to. Right? And it was such a powerful thing, and some of you need to hear this. In that moment when that conclusion came to me, there wasn't guilt and there wasn't condemnation and there wasn't shame. There was just a... Chris, how much more fun is it going to be when you throw that page away <laughs> and you can live here? How, what might happen? You don't know. Maybe that conversation, maybe he didn't remember you. And maybe this was just one more seed you could plant with a man who needed some more dignity. Some more people, I should say, affirming his dignity. You know? What, what if that was it? Great. Or what if it was something more? And God had already set the whole thing up. And someday I'd be introducing him as a new brother in Christ to you guys. How much more fun would that be? So that's where I ended at 9.30, and then I left here. And then one of our guys, Tony, uh, Tony came up and said, you know, hey, I just want to throw some out your way. He goes, I've had those kind of things happen to me before, and, and one of the things I've done is go back to the source. I'm like, but that would mean going to that restaurant. And then I remembered, it's not about the food. It all comes together, right? So I got second chances, and I'll pray, and we'll see, see what, what happens. But what if we tried to live more like this, doing our one job in any given moment? Let's pray to that end as we close. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you offer invitations to us, that, that you, our efforts... I, our efforts to you, that's the lukewarm water that's muddy and sedimenty and all that kind of stuff. That's what we can offer to you. Our best effort compared to what we're getting is that. And yet you want to pour living water into our lives. It is a trade up. 
So Lord, will you, will you help our minds to see clearly so that we can trust that you are ridiculously in charge? And whether we're planting a seed or whether we're there to reap the harvest of someone else's labor, may we commit ourselves in this moment to be used by you in any given moment ahead. Lord, thank you for doing that. Lord, we pray for those who, who aren't at that place, that you would continue through the example of who you are and what you're doing in us, that, that we would help them become curious, that they may one day trust you as well. And Lord, as we go forth, we offer ourselves fully to you. We offer our minds, we offer our hearts, we offer our strength, we offer our finances. It's all yours to begin with. So take it all and use it for your plans and your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.